Isaiah 48, verse 17. I am the Lord your God, who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river, your well-being like the waves of the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Grab your seats and let me pray for us. We are generous because you are generous. We seek the well-being of the wounded, the oppressed, the beat down, the abused, because we were the wounded, the oppressed, the beat down, and the abused, and you came for us. You gave up your wealth and riches, the glories of the kingdom of heaven, to become human, to rescue us. And so we now, your people, your body, we are the hands and feet we give up of ourselves to serve this city, to serve one another, to serve the sex trafficked, to serve the families, to serve the singles, to serve the couples, to serve Jesus because you served us so gloriously. As we launch into the fall, Father, and summer comes to a wrap, we ask now, Holy Spirit, that you would be communing with our spirits, that these teachings, these values would be embedded deeply in the core of who we are as a community of people. As a family, a newly forming family, give us persistence, give us commitment, give us wisdom, give us joy. And I do pray that each and every soul that you've gathered here this morning would have a sense of calling today, a restored and renewed vibrancy, seeing that their lives matter, their presence matters, their presence matters to this church. Their presence matters here on Sunday morning. Their presence matters in their community. Their presence matters in their workplace, in their classroom. You have appointed us as ambassadors, as carriers of the presence of God, as a non-anxious presence in the midst of all this panic and chaos. And so may we worship you as we study your word and rejoice in your love. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, amen. It was a battle, a battle of the wills. It was a clashing of the titans. She sat across from me at the kitchen table. Her jaw was set. Her eyes were aflame with obstinance, occasionally glancing down at the plate of breakfast that I had just put in front of her, only to return her icy glare right back into my eyes. This was my niece, Lydia. She was staying with my family and I, and like any good and caring uncle, I had decided that I would prepare for her a delicious and nutritious breakfast. Now, this wasn't just your run-of-the-mill bowl of boring oatmeal or a bland scrambled egg. This was one of my somewhat famous breakfast hashes. So in front of Lydia, I had set a pile of sweet potatoes and chopped up broccoli and mushrooms and ham chunks and egg and a sprinkling of cheese. And then the secret ingredient that I put in all of my culinary endeavors— a heaping helping of love. So as I set this plate before Lydia, I just expected the trumpets and fanfare to begin. Oh, uncle, what a gloriously delicious, nutritious breakfast you've made for me. I can't wait to eat this. Lydia, though, failed to see how beneficial that breakfast was going to be for her flourishing. She was convinced that the sweet potatoes and the mushrooms would at the very least cause violent and uncontrollable gag reflexes and at worst probably kill her. So she was not going to eat it. She informed me that instead, I would make her a bowl of cereal full of sugar, empty carbs, 
these toxic little but brightly colored charms masquerading as marshmallows. This is what she demanded to have. And so the battle of wills began. I straight up told Lydia as I sat across from her, no. And given the resolute set in her jaw as I told her no, I added, and, how many of your parents have done this? You won't eat anything at all, all day until you eat that breakfast. <laughs> and so she began her starvation protest. <laughs> A few hours later, it was probably about 10 or 11, I called her mom, Jessica, partially in an attempt not to get CPS called on me, and also because my will was finally beginning to crack. And so through Jessica, Lydia and I reached this compromise she wouldn't eat what I had made her, but instead she would have peanut butter toast with honey, but she wasn't getting that cereal full of empty carbs and sugar. And so goes the story. Lydia and I's battle of the wills. I, who so wanted to bless her, care for her, give to her what would be best for her, flourishing for her fullness of life, and she instead resisted refuted and warred with me. And this is the story from the beginning of humanity with God our Father. It is this relentless battle of the wills where we humans deny and ignore and even war with the one who in every single way today only and always wants to give you what is best for you. Always. And friends, as we watch the world around us, what we see and maybe what we've experienced in our own lives is that this resisting and refuting, this warring with the one who wants to give what is best to us, it ends in our woe. It ends in our self-destruction. Now Solomon in his wisdom would say that wise living starts with the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord recognizes, Proverbs 16, 25, there is a way that appears to be right from our perspective, but in the end, it leads to death. Fools never stop resisting long enough to actually ask, where is what I'm doing and committed to going to end? Like little kids who are convinced that their parents' choices for them aren't loving, or teenagers who are raging at their parents, this is not loving what you're doing to me. We as a collective humanity, we do as we will. We protest, we fight, and we do these things that harm ourselves instead of bringing healing. And all the while, our creator waits and our creator weeps inviting us to trust him, that he knows what is best. What God values, what God deems good and right and beautiful and true, from the fall of humanity, sin in our hearts has twisted those values and deformed those values and, con and confused them. Our values as a collective humanity are backwards and they're beat up. And it's these confused values that are driving our society, that are driving you and I as individuals. It's these distorted and backwards values that are shaping our decisions and guiding our behaviors. And we are sacrificing for those values. Lydia sacrificed being full and satiated with nourishing, delicious breakfast that her loving uncle had made for the sake of sugar cereal. This is the story of our souls. And no matter what you and I say today, 
No matter what New Year's resolutions we've made, no matter what goals we have set, no matter what strategies we are employing to become different people, we always, always live out of what we value the most. We unconsciously, unintentionally will always do what we value most. I would invite you, carefully look at where you spend your money. That is what you truly value. Take a little time this week and assess, where do I actually give my time? Where do I sacrifice my time? That is what you actually value. No matter how much you say you don't want to do that, what you do is what you actually value. Take time and consider the community around you. Who is it that influences you the most? Who do you allow into and surround and follow in your life that that influences the way you think about yourself and about the world that you live in. That is your value set. That is our value set. And so that brings us, as I said, to our fall emphasis from now until around Advent in November. If our Father truly knows what is best for you and I today, then we, as his sons and daughters, we want to learn to align our values with his no matter how strange or gag reflex inducing they might seem in the moment, no matter how difficult or challenging or even seemingly unloving Jesus's values might be for us, the role and responsibility of a maturing Christian community is to be continually revisiting our values, the values of Jesus, and asking, are we living out of these? And so we're gonna spend months revisiting our core values that we started with almost three years ago now and ask that super healthy, super honest question as a church plant, as a newly forming family, as a community of people, are we really living out our values? What are our values? Simplicity, stillness, and spirit. Months and months to pack, unpack these three values. We are a simple people that believe God exists we are loved by him. We want to love him and love the world for him and through him and bring the world to him. Simplicity. We'll talk about that at length. Stillness. This is that mystic, neo-monastic piece of neighbor's church. We truly believe that the frenetic, constant chaos of our lives is killing our souls. And so from rest as a state of existence, as one Orthodox scholar puts it, we want to do the work that he's called us to in the world. Doesn't that sound nice? Big deep breath into our bellies. Ah, stillness, rest as a state of existence. This is the way in which we work in the world. And then spirit, that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. More than ever, I am utterly convinced, without God's accompaniment of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God himself in and around and upon us, we are hopeless. And so we are going to plead and pray and teach on the presence of the Holy Spirit, God with us, God in us, one unto another. We are, for those of you that don't know, approaching three years as a church plant in October, and it has been a wild ride to say the least. Alexis and I talk a lot about a book we may write someday on church planting, and the chapter about planting on planting in the midst of global plagues, it's just going to be one word, don't. <laughs> it has been crazy, and for those of you that have been along the ride, I love you. Thank you. Thank you for being with us. Man. We want to bring everyone up to speed. We want to bring everyone here this morning up on the history and the stories of this local body of believers to integrate into the greater story of God's purposes within the church. 
We want to remind ourselves who we are and, and why God has led us to practice our apprenticeship unto Jesus in the particular way that this little local expression of his body does. I want you to seriously consider something as we get into this set of fall teachings through November. Consider this. Think about this. Talk about this at lunch today. 100% of the plight and the pain that you and I are experiencing right now today is because in some way we are refusing to trust that our creator knows what is best for us. 100% of it. But I would also offer the hopeful inverse of that. 100% of the joy and the peace and the pleasure and the flourishing that you and I are so longing for, it can only come as we surrender to our Father's will and we learn what is truly good, truly right, and truly beautiful. And so I'll read the words of Isaiah again for us this morning as the foundation for the fall series of teachings. I am the Lord your God. Simple. He exists. He's our God. He owns us. Who teaches you what is best for you? We are maturing as children, becoming adults in Christ, learning what is best for us. Who directs you in the way you should go? If only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river, your well-being like the waves of the sea. And so our Father, through the fall, wants to teach us what is best. He wants to direct us. And all kids, prayerfully, eventually grow up and they realize that sugar cereal will kill them if that's all they eat. In other words, all kids, prayerfully, mature. We get perspective. We learn to exercise self-control. We learn to stomach the broccoli because we know it's good for us. We learn to play the long game as a maturing community of faith. We know, we are convinced now that immediate gratification, despite what our society says, high-speed internet and fast food, we are convinced that immediate gratification is a vapor. But a long, slow obedience in a singular direction towards Jesus, we know this will result in everlasting flourishing. It's what you and I want more than anything. Maturing Christian communities, living out kingdom values, we learn to influence in three different arenas of life. In other words, as we model our life after Jesus' life and teachings, in this lifelong endeavor of realizing that what we once thought was so valuable to us, we realize, whoa, that was actually harming me. We turn and we embrace kingdom values. And in so doing, we become influencers, renewers of the world around us, friends, family members, peers, coworkers, fellow students, professors, parents. We become renewal agents helping the world mature in the values of the kingdom. And in these three arenas, we bring transformation. Number one, in the world, the world. The Bible describes the world, society, culture. We'll talk about that here in a moment. In our flesh, flesh is an old school Pauline word from St. Paul. It basically means the primal patterns of belief and behavior that are twisted by sin. We are transformed by living out Jesus's values and the flesh is submitted to the spirit. And then the third realm in which we live, and we're going to talk a lot about this through the fall, we live in the realm of the supernatural. I realize it's not sophisticated in our, in our social moment to talk about Satan, to talk about metaphysical evil, to talk about malevolent beings that are trying to do damage to us. But I would say the world is proof positive that there's something gnarly out there trying to kill us. And so we, the Christian, live in the nexus, in the interface, in the thin space between this metaphysical and physical, between heaven and earth, in the context of angels and demons and spirit. And we influence these metaphysical places 
as we live out what God believes is best for us. These forces, the world, the flesh, and the devil, are always in a constant act of resisting and corrupting Jesus' kingdom values. We saints of God are actually in a war. We shouldn't be surprised that we're struggling, that our trials are fiery, that things are hot, and sometimes it feels like we're getting shot at. We are in an actual war, and the comforts of Western Christian society are crumbling around us. The strongholds that we thought we were so safe in, like a house of cards, have been blown down. And so welcome to the war. Wake up. It's time to get your helmets on and get to fighting breastplate of righteousness, shoes of peace, shield of faith, sword of the word of God in our hands. Now, it's interesting here. The Hebrew, Hebrew is such a fluid language. And in our passage that I read for our teaching this morning, it could literally be translated, I am the Lord your God who teaches you how to be successful, which we as Westerners think, okay, yes, God will teach me how to get my best life now. That's not what it means. What it means, rather, a more literal translation would be, who teaches you how to be successful in being used by me. I am the Lord your God, your creator, your father, who teaches you how to be useful in the world for me for the world. So by learning to trust and to actually live out Jesus's kingdom values, the world will be transformed, our flesh is submitted to the spirit, and Satan is resisted and flees. The great Martin Luther King Jr. said this, there was a time when the church was very powerful. In those days, the church was not nearly merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Let's talk about society and the world here for just a bit and flesh this out. It's really important that we have our bearings, that we know where we are in this generation of the church, so that you're not going into the war blind. I'm convinced that we are approaching, if not full on, already into a Tower of Babel moment in modern society. How many of you are familiar with the Tower of Babel story in the book of Genesis? Ancient story in the book of Genesis, super strange. Let me summarize it for you. Humanity in the book of Genesis had developed a new technology. They had discovered stone and tar for their buildings instead of using straw and mud. And this new technology was being used to transform the society radically. The story tells us that humanity at this point was also completely unified in its language. Therefore, there was no confusion they were solidified and unified, and they had this new technology, and there was virtually nothing that they could not do. Humans unified around a common purpose, to build a tower, they said, to the heavens. And this tower, they said, would, quote, make a name for themselves. Now, the Hebrew imagery here and the Hebrew wording here, it's all Hebrew shorthand for this. The Tower of Babel humanity in that moment in time, they were saying, with this tower, a name to ourselves, they were saying, let's use our ingenuity, let's use our ability, let's use this new technology to become our own gods. Just another echo of the Garden of Eden. We can self-create. We can self-define. We can make ourselves whatever we want to be, whatever we deem best. We can do it together. And this is where we are located in this generation of the church in late Western modern society. Our culture, the world around us, 
possibly you, possibly me, influenced by the algorithms and Instagram and social media and our news feeds and our conversations at pubs and coffee shops. We are convinced that we are to use our technology, our ingenuity, and our abilities to build metaphorical towers according to our self-created value sets. Did everybody track with that? That is the mantra of our day. And the towers that we are building, these metaphorical towers that we are self-creating, they're technological, they're political, they're psychological, they're physical, they're social, and they're ideological. But they all, all of these metaphorical towers represent the same things. Humans defining themselves, creating themselves, establishing their own values, and deciding what's best. Just track with me here for just a moment. With the launch of Google Translate in April 2006, global language barriers disappeared. The World Wide Web has literally united rural and urban, first world, third world, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, across previously impenetrable barriers. Tower of Babel unified one language. Globalization has connected cultural influences and perspectives across every ocean. A CEO in a penthouse in Manhattan can be reading a ditch digger in India's blog. That's unheard of. In our materialistic society here in the West, we have made money and status our self-made value. It's the highest standard of value. We've embraced, and there's a long history on how we arrived at this social moment, but we have embraced unchecked expression of individual desire as the highest good. What I feel, I must express, and that is who I am, and that is my authentic place to be, and therefore nobody or anything or any God should ever challenge that. The only sin in our cultural moment is to press or to question or to challenge our own or anyone else's felt desires. We have, and again, this is, I'm not, I don't have time to unpack this in a nuanced way. I'm giving a historical survey here but our society is the first society to radically redefine the institution of marriage and the nature of family. We are the first society collectively in history to take matters of life, both at the beginning of life and at the end of life, into our own hands. Friends, the ongoing raging debates, uh, Roe v. Wade and the debates around physician-assisted suicide... Those are debates of humans arguing over who gets to de determine which human gets which rights to life and why. But God is not involved in that conversation in so many places. A community that is so filled with pain and deserves our love and is welcome at Neighbors Church, the transgender community, they are in this moment recreating what it means to be male and female. There is a, an, a historically unprecedented, radical reshaping of the vocabulary of a society and a disregard for the intersection of biological sex and gender in, any way, in, in ways never seen. I'm not saying that in an angry, condemning, we need to fix this way. I'm saying this is the moment that we are in. It's unprecedented. This is something that we are living in as Christians. People that we love dearly are having these conversations the transhumanists, and this is a space that I read in because super nerd, super nerd. Transhumanists, these are the futurists. They're the scientists. They are pioneering wearable and implanted biotechnologies that enable greater and greater human capacities that will make us eventually more than human. Think Terminator, cyborg stuff. I've got something on my wrist that's like a, a prototype of what one day will hopefully make me Superman. <laughs> but there's a lot of moral questions around that. 
difficult questions. Some are attempting to gain eternal life through cryo-freezing and uploading their brains into some sort of cloud. I'm down. I mean, if it works, it won't work. But. Geneticists, just a, just a couple more. Geneticists through technologies like CRISPR can literally, and the talk, the language that's used in the journals and the articles is create designer babies. We choose what we create. The promise, it's a promise of hope to be rid of genetic diseases. Who doesn't want that? Do we want a world without Down syndrome? Do you see how morally complex these situations are? Do we see how terribly painful these are? These, these arenas that I bring up, this Tower of Babel moment, every, every context that I just mentioned, every community that I just mentioned, those conversations are terribly complex. They are ethically challenging. There is progress and hope in those conversations. There is danger and damage in those conversations. There is pain and loss. There is gain and joy. They are all required to have massive nuance and consideration and listening and gentleness. But the point that I'm trying to make in this sermon, in this teaching, in this moment, before we get into our values this fall, is that we are situated as Christians in this Tower of Babel moment, this redefining, self-creating moment, and we are positioned here to fully live out the reality that God is the source of all reality. And so we, in the midst of the towers, including the own, our own towers that we're building, we Christians are not divorced from our temptation to build our own false temples. We, though, choose prayerfully and humbly and carefully and intentionally to seek his will in money and politics and justice, in the beginning of life conversation, in the end of life conversation, in sexuality and gender, in every, in the, should I wear this device that may make me human or more than human someday? I have to begin my conversation with, God knows what is best. I will do as God wills according to what he values as good, right, true, and beautiful. We are creatures of a creator, not creators of ourselves. And that is at the core of our value set in this world. We are simple creatures of a creator. We are still as his creatures, not the creator. And we operate in the power of our creator, not as creators. And so every ethical and political and social and psychological and medical and technological conversation begins with that grid in front of us as God teaches us what is best for the sake of the renewal of the world. And as the world, as society, collectively and increasingly, from my perspective, collectively and increasingly denies the reality of a creator of all reality and denies his wisdom in how he designed reality and fiddles about with the deep roots of creation, our very genetic structure, in seeking to self-create, humanity actually decreates. Actually decreates. And so what God did, and this is so important, what God did at the Tower of Babel was he confused the people at the Tower of Babel. He separated them from each other. And it was an act of mercy, not anger or rage. He mercifully said, we cannot let them do this much damage to themselves. Lydia, you're not going to have a bowl of cereal with pure sugar in it. And he said, no. He confused them and dispersed them. And so in this modern Tower of Babel moment, in his own way, God will mercifully be bringing all of our towers collapsing down. It's an act of mercy when your life feels like it's falling apart. 
It is. It is God saying, I want to take over and give to you what is best. And so maturing communities of Jesus, as we are formed by his values, this room and you, this community of people, we are to become an oasis for those that are wandering in from the deserts of self-creating wilderness of the world. This is why we want the futurists and the scientists. We want the transgender community and the gay community. This is why we want every person on this planet welcome in this place to sit and listen and learn and be with another community of people who are saying there are values of pure love and joy and brilliance and guidance and where you're hurting. I know it doesn't seem like that should bring hurt, but it is bringing hurt. Not that we have all the answers. We are all walking along together, allowing God to build our lives up as the true temple, the church a place of his presence, a place of worship. Everybody tracking with that? Everybody good with that? All right, that's what we're gonna talk about all fall. Second, our flesh. Let's talk about our flesh for a little bit. If we are to be useful in the world, living out Jesus's values, then our flesh has to be submitted to the spirit. And we are personally transformed as we seek Jesus's teachings and his way of life. And this, friends, for you that are sitting in here this morning, this is where the rubber hits the road. How many of us came here today hoping, man, I need a word about how I can find peace in my life? None of you want peace in your life? Oh, two, three of you? Four of you? Wow, you guys are all that good. It must be San Diego sunshine. I don't know what's going on. (laughs) We all came here, I would assume, because we need a word from God. Here's how you have joy in your life. Here's the situation that I want to take care of. Here's how I'm going to provide for you. That's what we're all doing. That's why we show up to places like this. But the rubber hits the road, the rubber hits the road in our longing for joy and contentment because the back half of that verse I read for our teaching this morning, verse 18 of Isaiah 48, if only you had paid attention to my commands, if only you had paid attention to my commands, if only you had dug in, paid attention, slowed down, investigated, introspectively, sat with the council of the church, which used to be called the place of therapy, literally, This is some stuff that I've been reading lately. It's crazy. The church is the place of therapy. Your peace would have been like a river, your well-being like waves of the sea. There's a promise on the table for you and I this year. Peace like a river, well-being like the waves of the sea, if we pay attention to the commands of Jesus. And this is where the rubber hits the road. This is where it gets so difficult because Jesus of Nazareth, his values and his teachings, they are so different from what our society says is valuable, from what Satan convinces us is valuable, and from what our malformed, deformed flesh says we want. Jesus's teachings in almost every category of the human experience turn upside down what we think we want most. Let me give to you a list of examples. The rich young ruler, who we all want to be, he had money, he had good looks, he had everything you could imagine in society, he had prestige. To him, this homeless carpenter, stonemason, Jesus, comes to him and says, sell everything. What? His value was money and prestige, and Jesus says, sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. We live in a society obsessed with celebrity, obsessed with celebrity, obsessed with fame, obsessed with, quote-unquote, significance and influence. I fall prey to this temptation almost every day of my life as a small local church pastor. And to us, to a society obsessed with, cele- with, with celebrity, Jesus 
taught us to be anonymous and to live our lives in secret. So counterintuitive. Listen, when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret, the practice of secrecy. When you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. When you fast, don't post it on Instagram and let everybody know how hungry and holy you are. Put oil on your head, wash your face, do it in secret so that nobody knows you haven't eaten, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Not who sees what is done on our social media platforms, who sees what we do when nobody else sees it. This is the value of Jesus, anonymity, secrecy, quietness, lives lived to his glory and to his glory alone. We are convinced that if we only had more power, and this is the political piece that we're watching unfold in the war in Ukraine, if we only had more power, more land, more weapons, more, 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 then we would finally be somebody, then we'd finally be at peace. And Jesus said, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? We are, I am, I am personally obsessed with self-discovery and self-expression. I've spent multiple years now, 2013 to today, almost a decade studying the Enneagram and various personality tools and introspectively going deep into my psyche and years and years of therapy because I am obsessed with self-discovery and self-expression. And Jesus' teachings, whenever I'm in that rut of, I need to know who I am, my truest self, God, who have you made to me to be? Jesus comes and says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. What? Deny myself? It's all about finding myself. What does this guy even mean? Friends, there is no place in any gospel where Jesus asks his disciples to discover and express themselves from within. Rather, he always asks his followers, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Our sense of self is always determined by who Jesus is to us, who we say he is. That is who you are. Who Jesus is to you, that is who you are. Is he the definer of your being? The way you answer that question determines who you are. Is he the maker of our essence? Is he the provider of what we truly need? Is he our protector? Is he our ultimate power? Is he in control? Is he the one who determines our purpose? The way we answer those questions creates our actual values. And our flesh wants nothing to do with Jesus' teachings in our immaturity, but... Hope beyond hope. As we grow, as we commit, as we say, okay, I'm going to trust that secrecy is better than celebrity. I'm going to trust that weakness is better than power. I'm going to trust that giving is better than taking. I'm going to trust in these backwards values as we incrementally obey and live these teachings out. Surprise of surprises, it works. We begin to flourish. We begin to experience moments of peace. When we stop the desperate seeking of who am I, where is my most authentic self, and we just say, Jesus, who are you? Suddenly we come into our own. We begin to realize, oh, this is who I am in relationship to my creator. Slowly, our sources of joy are reoriented around this upside-down way of being human. We become settled and resilient. And then what happens is a whole community of individuals start doing that, and the city begins to notice, and we become an oasis. Or as Shua likes to say, we become an ark. The floods are rising and we're an ark with doors wide open. Get on the ark. Get on the ark. Finally, our values enable us to resist the lies of Satan. And as I said, we will talk in depth about the metaphysics of the Bible going through the fall. In the biblical imagination, never forget this. Heaven and earth are porous. 
there's interface, there's continual goings-on between the angelic and the demonic and the physical and the human. Daily, right now, in this room, we are interacting. Our souls, in some mysterious way, are interacting with a myriad of demons and angels and the Holy Spirit. <laughs> it is trippy when you begin to think about it. It kind of weirds me out. I've had multitudes of moments where I've been like, whoa, there are billions of angels watching this right now. What does that mean? The mission of the church, I will teach you how to be useful, how to succeed, what is best for you. That mission is to take back the ground on earth that Satan gained at the fall, to bring heaven to earth. We are on a war zone. We are in a war zone taking back the ground that Satan fell. When Adam, dirt, with breath breathed into him, and Eva, Eve, source of life, when they gave up the, the truth that they were created, created instead of creators, and they believed that they could be their own gods, they basically handed the title deed of creation over to Satan. That's what happened there. And ever since then, this malevolent, terrible, personal evil has been at work, convincing us that we can be our own gods convincing us that we can self-create and build our towers. And God in his mercy is continually like, that's a house of cards, poof, house of cards, poof, house of cards, poof. That's not best for you. That's not best for you. That's not best for you. And so this past vacation, I came away with two themes for our church for the rest of the year. This passage, the Isaiah one, God knows what is best for us, was one of the primary ones. And the other one was every single place I read in the gospels, all I could see was Jesus conquering Satan. And so the second theme for us through this next year is that we are conquerors of Satan. <laughs> we are conquerors in this metaphysical realm. We push back and we resist evil because Jesus overcame Satan's temptations and crushed him through the cross and the resurrection. So almost done in the temptation scenes in Matthew chapter 4. You know what Satan was doing there? He was trying to twist Jesus's value sets. That's what he was doing, just like he's done to all humans. He was tempting Jesus to be self-supporting, by making bread miraculously rather than relying on God's word as his greatest nourishment. He was trying to get Jesus to test God, to prove, to prove God, to get God to, to unfold Jesus's purposes in Jesus's times instead of Jesus submitting to God the Father and his purposes and in his timing. And then he offered him all the kingdoms of the earth if he'd only bow down and worship him. He was twisting, trying to twist Jesus's value sets. And Jesus refused each of those offers. And therefore, because he's the truly human one, and we are in the truly human one who prevailed and then went to the cross and absorbed all of our tower building and all of our wrongdoing and all of our self-creating, Jesus was decreated because of our self-creations. Does that make sense? He was decreated on the cross to recreate us in the born-again reality of Christianity. This is why we say, I need to be born again. I need God to indwell me. I need the Holy Spirit to come into the chaos of my heart and reform me, make me new, make my desires new, make my hopes new, make my values new. And so from this Sunday morning through the fall and prayerfully for the rest of the life of our church, we will come and we will assess our values through the grid of scriptures. What do the scriptures say as best as we can interpret them in the moment that we find ourselves in with the guidance of the Holy Spirit teaching us offering us conviction and comfort through the sweet counsel of the church. We're going to stress over and over and over 
the presence one unto another, that your presence here on Sunday morning matters for the well-being of your soul and for the well-being of other souls. Presence in community, the counsel of the church one unto the other, caring for one another, and all the complex, ethical, difficult conversations that we have to have in this generation of the church, we will need each other more than ever for the sake of the world, not against the world, for the sake of the world. And so we come to communion this morning. I am the Lord your God, teaching you what's best for you. I want to direct you in the way you should go. I'll change it and paraphrase it as he's speaking to me. Please pay attention to my commands. Peace like a river will flow and your well-being will be like the waves of the sea.